you know, having come out of two divorces, Mm -hmm. I think you realize there's a lot you have to learn about yourself or relearn about yourself. Mm -hmm. And then there's new things because like I do have an illness I'm dealing with too. Take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple, Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Check us out online at couplesynergy.com and be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couples Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experiences with working with thousands of couples for over 15 years. You know, every day we get to hear stories about intimate details about a couple's celebrations, disappointments, and everyday challenges. We've often wished these stories were shared because we know we are more similar than different. And so we've not only created an avenue where you can hear about people's intimate lives, but an atmosphere where people come over to our home, pub, pour a drink, and share their stories. People like today's guest, Teresa. Hello and welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and tell us your story. Your story is a very interesting one too. Before we get to that, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How old are you? What do you do for a living? I am 53 years old and I manage an oral surgery practice in Lake Zurich. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, one of the things that we were going to be talking about today is, you know, kind of your history, your experiences with your relationships. And you kind of have a very unique story with that because as you're going to get into it later, you had to kind of struggle with an illness at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. That's correct. So why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're at right now in relationships and, you know, kind of. Okay. Re- well, as far as relationships right now, my focus has mainly been just taking care of myself and kind of focusing on myself, my likes and dislikes and having my own place and just getting used to enjoying that actually, and embracing actually being alone, somewhat uncomfortable with myself and and loving that part. And where I'm also learning new things about things. I don't even know if they're new things, but things that maybe were buried, I want to say, that that come out that you realize, oh, yeah, I enjoy doing that. I'm going to go do that. You know, last night I went to a movie by myself. That's (laughs) fun. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, it's just... So really learning how to be in relationship with yourself. I think so first. I think, uh, you know, having come out of two divorces, Mm -hmm. I think you realize there's a lot you have to learn about yourself or relearn about yourself. Mm -hmm. And then there's new things because like I do have an illness I'm dealing with too. So there's there's all new things that come up and there should always be new things anyway. Right. I mean, we're always changing and evolving and learning and hopefully. Right. <laughs> Can you talk about when you met your first husband and what it was like dating back then and how you guys decided to get married and how things were in the beginning? 
Sure. I met my first husband when I was very young. I was 17. I wasn't even graduated from high school yet. He was three years older than me. He was from a a big family, a big Italian family that I had known pretty much all my, probably from like middle school on, I knew this family. And they were a great family. And, um, you know, I was just, I think I was more started infatuation, of course, at that age, you know. And then, you know, we got to know each other through friends. Um, It progressed pretty slow. So he didn't like ask you out or take you on a date. You just sort of hung out. With friends Mm -hmm. to start. Yes. Because I was three years younger and Mm -hmm. I was 17 and he was older. So he, yeah, I think he wanted to wait till I was 18 before he was, I think, officially dating me. But um, we did hang out out a lot in groups um, of friends. And then when I did graduate, I had moved right away to Chicago to go to school. And that's where he was going to school at the time. So we saw each other every day. We walked mm-hmm. to each other's place every day. Were and you just friends at that point or did you know you were No, a we started dating. Okay. Yes. So yes. it was official. It was official. Yes. And how long did you date before you got married? We dated, let's see, it was about th- almost three years. Okay. Did you ever live together or were you? We did. How, how soon did you guys move in together? It wasn't till about a uh, about a year before we did get married. Probably about 10 months to a year before. Were you already engaged? We were not. Okay. What year was that? I want to say it was 1985. Okay. And how, <laughs> how did your family respond to you living with someone and not being married? My father did not like that at all. He did not talk to me. He is a very strict Catholic. I was brought up in a Catholic household with going to Catholic school, grade schools, Catholic high school. So uh, he basically didn't talk to me, my father, and he would not talk to me until I had a ring on my finger. <laughs> what What are some of the messages that you learned as a 1980s Catholic schoolgirl about being a wife, sexuality, those kind of things? Well, I think growing up, I think it's a very sheltered world somewhat and you don't really see the full picture. And I think, you know, you're taught that, or at least in my household, we were taught more or less the traditional roles and the expectations of me was to get married and have kids. Mm -hmm. That was what the expectation was. They didn't think I was going to go off to college or or go do anything. So I did go off to college for a short while, but that was pretty much decided for me where I was going to Mm. school, what I was going to go kind of into. And I was somewhat rebelling against it, yet I didn't have the funds or the know-how to back up something else I wanted to do, basically. Did you have any siblings? I did. I had um, three older brothers and a younger sister. Okay. So you were kind of in the middle then. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Were boys and girls treated differently in your family? Yes. I want to say they were treated differently as far as it, it was just very, the roles mm-hmm. were, this was what the boys would do and this is what the girls would do. So I was never asked to cut the grass right. or because there were three boys who would cut the grass, 
you know, or shovel snow. I think we would go out and shovel snow, all of us, just to go outside. But yeah, did, it was did, pretty distinct. Did the drawing. boys or the girls have more freedoms or no, expectations? I, we both, we were all had to do chores, but mm-hmm. we did dishes and set the table and laundry and the boys did anything else that was outside mm-hmm. or, you know. So they didn't do dishes did. or laundry? Not very rarely. Very rarely. Yeah. yeah. You weren't the first to get married in your family, were you? No. And actually, all my siblings, for the most part, except from the youngest, got married pretty young. My oldest brother, who is actually, I want to say 65, or will be this year, he got married to his first wife because he's been married twice, his first wife at 19. Oh, wow. Okay. I was actually a flower girl in the wedding. My <laughs> sister and I were five and seven. Wow. Well, yeah. So you guys get married. And then how are things after you get married? Actually, they were pretty good. I mean, we were very much in love. We We started out, though, with, he started out with, or I guess we both did and the marriage could have affected us both. He had lost sight in one of his eyes. Mm. He woke up one morning and he just couldn't see. Wow. And it was very traumatic. I mean, and I think it was actually a week before we got married. Wow. And so we were taking him to specialists and dealing with that. It was just spontaneous. It was, and it's never gone away. He's had to deal with it his whole life. He lost sight out of that eye. He's legally blind. And they look at it as a sort of like a toxoplasmosis or some sort of weird thing that just don't he know. lost. It. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. How did that sure. impact you guys? I mean, it, it impacted because, he, you know, here he has to retrain his eyes, because he's only seen out of one eye now. As far as work, I mean, I think that took a while for him to get adjusted to work. He he was actually a painter, so oh. mm-hmm. so he ended up starting off with this painting business. But I think because of the way things were progressing, he decided to go into like the plumbers union because mm-hmm. that's. My dad was in the plumber's union. Two of my brothers were in the plumber's union. So they they just all kind of followed suit, you know, Mm -hmm. and went Which is pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. So how long into the marriage before you have children? It was only about a year and a half. Was it something you guys chose or did it just sort of happen? No, we we actually chose that. I was 22. That's when we we had Benton. And we waited you know, a couple more years. And that was, well, I should say that was more of an accident when we had Elena. It wasn't planned. Okay. But the first one, believe it or not, was <laughs> planned at 22. <laughs> and what was it like for you to adjust to becoming a mom? For me, it was very easy to adjust to being a mom. I mean, I I had watched and babysat kids from the time I was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. So for me, to be a mother, I mean, it just came naturally. Did, did it affect your relationship? I think it it affected the relationship in the sense that since we now had this child, I wasn't working full time. I, I was working part time and he was the breadwinner. 
Mm-hmm. And I think the stress of having a child is how his addiction started getting stronger. Because I think the pressures of, wow, this is really, this is really happening and I'm responsible for these people really to like taking a toll on him mm-hmm. instead of expressing his feelings to me, you know, and that maybe we would work something out and I'd work full time or work more hours. He, he internalized it and then started using drugs. How, how did you know he had a problem? You can, well, he started not coming home mm-hmm. after work. I mean, that, that was a big clue after, I mean, it, it just kept getting more and more frequent. And then, you know, he would come home. There were nights he was, he didn't come home at all. What was that like for you? At that time, I was pregnant with the mm-hmm. second one. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was having an affair. Because mm-hmm. that's, of course, what you would think at first. Um, except when I would see him when he'd come home. I'd see what he'd look like. And it just looked like his eyes were sunken in. And, you know, you could tell. Yeah, what that was he was he doing using? something. He actually was using crack cocaine. Well, wow, wow, mm-hmm. yeah, because I think that was the easiest for him to get. Okay, and the fastest high. Yeah, it was pretty popular. That's that's like their early nineties now, right? That you're kind of talking about. Um, yes, close to it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah. So he's staying out all night. You have a three-year-old, four-year-old, two-year-old, two-year-old and a baby, and you're pregnant. Right. Or about to have a baby. Yes. What are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's happening in your world? I I got to a point where I had to give him an ultimatum because I just couldn't handle him not being home for two nights straight. And then I don't know if he's dead or alive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the stress of that was pretty high. How long before you, he first starts getting into stuff and not coming home till you get to that point where you're like, I need I need something to change. For me, it was only six months okay. about at that time where, because I could tell how bad it was. I mm-hmm. mean, there were, he'd be gone two nights straight. I mean, and I'd find out he was in like a crack house. So, wow. yeah. So the fact that he wasn't killed or dead was even amazing to me. But when you could tell his skin was yellow, like I could actually see how ill he was. Mm -hmm. I gave him an ultimatum and I actually packed a whole bunch of suitcases, put him by the front door. And I said, you can either go to rehab and, you know, I'll be here for you. I'll help you through it. We'll, you know, we'll stay together as a family or you can grab your suitcases and you can leave. Did you have any support at that time from your family, from his family? Well, they knew what was going on. Okay. Mm-hmm. His family, I mean, I think they knew what was going on, but we really didn't come out and say anything. Mm-hmm. And when I gave that ultimatum to Dana, he actually grabbed the suitcases and he said, well, I guess I'm Lightman because yeah. he actually wow. chose the drug. Wow. Mm-hmm. So it was at that point that I broke down and I called my family and I'm like, you know, this is what's going on. And then about two days later, Dana came back with his suitcases, forced crying. It wasn't the first time I would see the remorse. I saw the remorse every single time. Mm-hmm. You know, he'd cry. And I said, well, <clears throat> the only way you can come back here is if you go straight to rehab right now. I said, you have to go to a 30-day 
in treatment rehab. And what was amazing is my dad came and drove him straight up to Minnesota to Hazelden. Hazelden up in Minnesota. Yeah. 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 What was great about that program, I was able to go through the family program, which was a week long program where you stay there too, Mm -hmm. which was really which was really eye-opening for someone who is the family member because you think that you have it all together and that nothing's wrong. <laughs> and that changed really fast. So he goes into the 30-day program at Hazleton mm-hmm. and you're able to go up for a week. Right. What are some of the things that you learned that were really life-changing and eye-opening for you? Well, I remember sitting in a group and in these group sessions, they also have some of the other addicts in the room, not just other family members. So in this group session, there were addicts in there and they were like, so, you know, they were wanting me to tell them about about myself. And the minute I started talking, all I was talking about was him and everything that he was going through. And then they just looked at me and they're like, yeah, but what are you going through? And I'm like, well, I'm not going through anything. <laughs> I'm not the one with the problem. Right. I'm not going through anything. And they were just like looking at me like, seriously? <laughs> They're like, did you just like bury it? And you just don't know what's going on? And and then finally it was like, you know, day after day, they like just broke me down to where I, yeah, I was basically in tears every time I was. Isn't that amazing that you didn't know? No. And, and I think that's a really common kind of coping mechanism that people do. And it's like, you know, trying to teach them the sky is green and you're like, what are you talking about? So looking back, what was it that you were going through at that time? Well, I, Definitely denial that it was affecting me emotionally. Mm-hmm. Maybe some grief too. Oh, definitely yeah. grief. I mean, that all that grief came out. I think, you know, you're trying to deal with kids. So trying to be a mother, yet trying to understand, you know, how, how is this all going to, how am I going to come out of this? Mm-hmm. How, are, how are things going to be different? And, you know, you're just going through that, all the like the emotions of everything. And I just remember getting back. The hard part was getting back to everyday life. I mean, the week at Hazleton was great, but yeah, you, the real life once you get back, and you, you know, you realize, well, you know, I'm I'm working now. We had we decided to move for the family. So we figured we were going to move up near Minnesota. So we away from all your support. Right. Which I didn't even think through. Right. But he thought, of course, that it was going to be better for us as a start if he could get away from all these old friends. Mm -hmm. And I understood that. Yeah. I I totally understood that. And I'm like, you know, I get that. I'm willing to do this. I'm really willing to sell the house move away and try it. And so I did and we got jobs up there and, you know, things are going along just fine. You're getting the kids, one start in kindergarten, one's in preschool, getting it all set up, you know, and every day seems like, okay, yeah, it's going pretty good. You know, he's going to his meetings. I would go to Al-Anon meetings once in a while. And then 
the bottom out because he wouldn't show up. I'd get a call from his job, like, do you know where your husband's at? No. And I'd be like, oh. <laughs> how, like, how, how long was it from when you moved there to you getting that first call? Oh, probably like three weeks. Yeah, wow. Mm-hmm. And he was doing the same thing? He ended up doing the same thing. He would get back with his sponsor um, and he'd do good for a while. Mm-hmm. And then it, it would go, you know, he'd go out again or find some reason. So now he's in a longer cycle. Right. So, and it's going up and down and up and Mm -hmm. down for all of us. Yeah. (laughs) That's when it got so hard for me is when it got to a point where one day, because we had one car, I was at work. I was supposed to get picked up and then we were going to go pick up the kids. Mm -hmm. Well, he never picked me up. So, okay, well. I don't know when I'm getting picked up. I'm a half hour from home and the children have no way of getting picked up. Mm-hmm. So I had to call the sitter and I had to say, well, I got to find a ride. Once I find a ride, I can come and get the kids. But here I had, you know, a three and a five-year-old um, when I finally got there, like two hours late, yeah. crying. Like, where were you? We didn't know what happened to you. And that's when they, I was like, I can't do this. So in, during that time from the three weeks that after when he started using a gun until this moment, did you continue going to Al-Anon or did you kind of take a step back from that as well? No, I would go now okay. and then. And I would, I've, I had met people and then I was working mm-hmm. at this time now. So I had a lot of coworkers who knew the situation yeah. and were there to help. So I felt pretty strong mm-hmm. at that point, um, strong enough to kick him, basically kick him out, mm-hmm. which I I hated to do, but I had to do it. Yeah. At the point that I did that, he took our only car and put all of his belongings in it and left. So then I had to call my parents and say, well, I need one of you to come up here because I got to buy a used car. (laughs) And I did have money in the bank because when Dana and I were younger in our first early years of marriage, we flipped houses. Okay. And we did about four of them. And I had that stash of money. Thank God. So So when he was in his addiction, he didn't burn through a lot of money. Nope, because I had control of it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did, did you know that that was going to be your deal breaker at that point? No, but I think seeing the kids and how heartbroken they were and scared they were, mm-hmm. that I realized this isn't, he, he's got to come to terms with it himself first. Mm-hmm. Like I can't, and for me to go up and down, I just wasn't. Mm-hmm ready to do I couldn't do it I I think I it almost lasted a year of going up Mm -hmm. and down and it just got to the point where I'm like I can't so they're also seeing him not coming home and you not knowing what's going on right and and you know did he ever come home and act out I would cry because Mm -hmm. I knew what was going on so then they you know these young kids see you cry and they know something's not right he was pretty irate when I threw him out. You know, he left and, and, and then I, 
I was thinking about, you know, maybe I should file for a divorce, but I was kind of like just waiting to see what goes on. And then what happened was a week later, he came back and he must have been using because he came in and he was, that's when he started. There was abuse before that. I guess I never really went over that, but Mm -hmm. there was mild abuse before that. And I say mild in the sense that I physically wasn't getting hit, Mm -hmm. but I was getting scared like he was going to hit me because he would actually punch the wall right by my head or something. Mm -hmm. So it was fear-based. That's how it started. That's how it started. And I think that started after he lost sight in his eye. Um, Oh, so that's been going on longer before the addiction. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there were anger, there was anger built up Mm -hmm. and then the addiction just made it explode. So, so this is before you got married. No, it was right, right right at when we, yeah. Cause it was right when we got married, like a week before is when he lost. So, I mean, the anger really didn't start till after the marriage, which, yeah, which is, which which is, I blamed just on what was going on with him, Mm -hmm. you know? So I, I didn't say anything to anybody. So when he came back, did it then become physical? Yeah. When he came back after I threw him out because, you know, he needed to just go figure his life out. He came back to see the kids like a week later and it was, he, he was accusing me of an affair. He had me in a chokehold with the kids there. You know, he was punching punching my arms and like, you know, acting like he's going to hit me even harder and stuff like that. But I had marks on my neck. Mm-hmm. He was going through my purse to try to get, take money mm-hmm. or take anything he could. And then I think he just got, it's like he kind of lost it because then he grabbed a knife and he acted like he was going to cut his slice, his wrist. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, and I was, that time you don't really have cell phones. Right. right. So the only phone I had was on the wall. Well, what did he do? He took and ripped it off the wall. Oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I had to run next door after he left. And, you know, I had to call the cops because I had the cops just come to the house. And, and I filed a report. Okay. Yeah, I did file a report. I did get a restraining order because he had threatened to kill me. This is when this whole Nicole Simpson, OJ Simpson thing was going on. And he, he actually threatened to kill me like that. Like he made reference to that. How was your experience with the law enforcement? Up there, they were very adamant about let's follow through with this because of that whole OJ Simpson. Mm -hmm. Like the judge that I had even, she, she was like, she put the maximum on that restraining order. Like for, I think it was like five years. It was like a long time. Wow. Yeah. And then when I did file for divorce, I, I eventually pretty much right after that filed for divorce, right in that Wisconsin County that I was in. Mm-hmm. And I got sole custody of the children, of course because he never even showed up for the divorce or anything like that. It was pretty much... Did you get any financial support? It was written in there for a few hundred dollars a month. Right. um, No, not not until he was able to get himself cleaned up, which was probably another three to four years. 
he came back and he did help them Mm -hmm. financially. He helped them through college. Um, Yeah. So in the end, he ended up getting clean and being a good dad and. Yep. And remarrying himself. And he actually has a baby and he's 55. (laughs) (laughs) So at, at the time that you filed for divorce, you're about 28. 29? I was, yep, I was 28. And 20, how old were yeah, the kids? 29. No, maybe 29. The kids at that time were th- three and five, I would say. So do you stay in Wisconsin? No, they were a little older than that, now that I'm thinking of it. They were, by the time I left Wisconsin, I think they were like five and seven, actually. Mm-hmm. So they're five and seven, and you're 29, and you're on your own. I moved back to Illinois. It was good. I, you know, I I knew that was something that had to go on, but it was going to be hard. So I was interviewing for jobs and I actually found a friend whose husband was an oral surgeon and it's not the practice I'm at now, but he was looking at opening a office in Buffalo Grove and he wanted somebody who had managed other offices and I did manage other type of business offices Mm -hmm. um, before that. So I went and started working as a office manager for oral surgery practice. And I had never, never had done anything in the dental (laughs) field at all. So it was all brand new, but um, it was in Buffalo Grove and I moved to Wheeling and yeah, and that's where it started over for me. Now, did you get any support from your family at this time? I always had support. You always had support. Always had support. Yes. I actually in the interim when I got the job and I still had to find a place to live, I stayed I lived at my parents, but I had to commute like almost 2 hours to a job. Mm-hmm. For a while. So that they helped me find actually a condo and I actually bought the condo because I still had money. So we bought the condo um, in Wheeling, a three bedroom condo. Did you continue to find support and to learn about, you know, what, what was going on for you at that time or how to heal this? I didn't continue like searching out any type of counseling or anything at that time. No. I think I was just so busy with that. Well, I think with with the job and and, and running running a medical office is you know, it, and it was definitely more than forty hours a week. And and then I had the kids, um, and then they're at the ages where they're involved in school. You're trying to get them each at least involved. I was trying to into a sport. Mm-hmm. And I, all I remember saying to myself was, okay, you got to be strong because you got to be both mom and dad. And I don't want anybody to know that these kids are coming from us, you know, a single mm-hmm. parent household. So mm-hmm. I always told myself, I got to be strong. But there were days, boy, I would just break down and, you know, they would have gotten to me and I'm just sitting there in the middle of the hall floor crying because I <laughs> felt defeated, you know, because sure. there was so much going on. But I don't know, somehow I just I pulled through it, kept going. And I think I just had a lot of support with friends and family, too. So that helped. And, and how old are the kids when you start dating again? So I think they were 
in like second and fourth grade when I first started dating again. I dated a couple people, different, totally different people than I dated before, which was fun. Mm-hmm. Um, one la- one relationship lasted one one relationship lasted about six months. The other one did not last that long. And how how were you meeting these people at that time? Through other people. Through other people, okay. Mm-hmm. The one that lasted about six months probably wasn't a good thing, but it was from one of the co-workers' brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And he was six years younger than me. So, he was 24, and then I think I was, what, 30, 30 at that time now. Yeah, yeah, that that combination doesn't really work too much, does it, Gene? <laughs> um, you know, he was he had a very good work ethic, you know, and he it wasn't like he was, you know, he was a construction worker, so he worked hard. But when, yeah, when Ray and I met, I was thirty and he was twenty four. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? That's why he's joking oh, about that. Oh, so yeah. so yeah, so that was you know, and I really liked him a lot, but I I could see when he ended it, he was like, yeah, I don't think I'm ready for taking on a, and I'm like, well. I get that. You're 24. <laughs> totally get that. Yeah. So, you know, I went along for a while. I wasn't dating, which was okay. And then I know one of the older women in the office who was working with me, she's like, oh, well, there's that chiropractor upstairs. Maybe she should just ask him out. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not asking anybody out at this point. <laughs> no, I'm just laying low. And then there was one day when Steve came down and he, you know, he would always come down because his patients gave him like massive amounts of food. Don't ask <laughs> me why. So he would bring them down to share like mm-hmm. food all over like the office complex, mm-hmm. like to people like, here, you want some food? And so he would come down and ask, you know, so this particular time he's coming down, but he doesn't have anything in his hand. And I'm like, okay. And I was by myself and I'm like, can he do and like and then he asks me out and I'm like but he's hands on the door the whole time like he's asking me like ready to, <laughs> ready to run away if you yeah. say no right. <laughs> and I said yes and then we dated for about a year and a half um, and what was it about him that you fell in love with he had there was a lot of humor mm-hmm. he was pretty funny at times he could be very funny I didn't take the relationship that seriously though I got to tell you I mean <laughs> I, there were things, you know, he was quirky at times and there were things I fell in love with and things I'm like, oh my God, you're such a nerd, you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's normal, mm-hmm. you know, and I think I didn't have these, I should have had higher expectations of what I really needed and what I wanted, but I think I was still at at 31 at that point and thinking, you know, I don't think I'm going to get married, but lo and behold, I got pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Oops. That kind of changed the whole situation. (laughs) And, and of course me, I didn't even tell him I was pregnant. He kind of figured it out because I wasn't even sure up here what what I was going to do. So kind of back to that denial place of, yeah. Yeah, if I don't say it out loud. Like, maybe it's not real. How am I going to tell people at 31 I'm pregnant? <laughs> <laughs> so, how, how long were you dating at this yeah. time? Was it about a year and a half? About a year and a half. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. How pregnant were you when he figured it out? It was a couple months. How did he approach you with that? Um, I just remember laying in bed and him going, so you really haven't had your period lately. And I'm like, yeah, about that. Yeah, I'm actually uh, pregnant. How long did you know before and that conversation? And he kind of, it was like just all the blood came out of him. Like I had never seen anybody just go stone cold like, what? <laughs> And it was just, it was, it was kind of like a shock for him too. You know, he was actually 31 or 41, 10 years older than me. So I don't think he was thinking about instant family because here I have two kids and, and now there's, now I'm pregnant. Mm -hmm. Well, for that year and a half that you guys were dating, you never talked about living together or, you know, getting married. No. It was just a casual type of we relationship. We never talked about marriage and we, no, we never talked about living together. Wow. No. And I think it took us both by surprise. <laughs> I think both of us realized that the best thing to do was to try to make a go of it. Even though we weren't sure. Mm. I think we were sure that we should get married, but we weren't sure if it was 100% going to work. You know, we were kind of like, okay, we're going to, we're going to get into this and we're going to do the best that we can. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of how we just started approaching it because he didn't really come out and ask me, will you marry me? That was never asked. It was never asked. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Okay. And it it never even dawned on me Mm -hmm. either because I think we were just in this mode of like, Mm -hmm. You know, we got to get things rolling here and if we are going to get married. And so we just started looking for like rings and we just got plain wedding bands. And did you, you have know, a ceremony? We had a ceremony done by a rabbi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we had it on a Sunday afternoon. We had a brunch. We had a wedding and we had a brunch afterwards. And we kept it very simple. It was just family and friends. So from the perspective of today, looking back at those two relationships and what you watched as a child and what you learned about relationships from your parents, what kind of patterns were you aware of? Well, I was aware of the patterns that I was wanting to probably even force on the whole situation because I realized that I wanted this traditional role because that's what I was used to. I wanted to be home with my kids. And if I was going to have a baby, I did not want to put the baby in daycare. Mm -hmm. And I never had to put the two oldest in daycare when they were babies. And um, I was pretty adamant about that. You know, I would eventually go to work, but I didn't want to do it, you know, for like the first year at least. So you kind of had more of that traditional, he's providing your home with kids. Mm-hmm. And that ended up continuing for quite a long time because then in four more years, I ended up pregnant again. <laughs> was that another unexpected thing? Yes, it was because the oldest was 16 at that time and I was pregnant. So they were mortified <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so how are, how are things in the relationship before you were diagnosed? 
Well, in the relationship with Steve, we had these traditional roles. Okay. So, and I think it went along for a while. Pretty good. Until with kids, you tend to be so busy with the kids that you forget about, you know, that you guys even have a relationship. You know, it just... Did you guys sleep in the same room? We started out that way. Mm-hmm. By the time the second... Um, well, it's really the fourth child, but his second child came along. He was no longer in the bedroom. And part of the reason was I was nursing. I wasn't sleeping and the baby was in the bed a lot of times with us. Mm -hmm. So I think for him, because he was working and he had to get up the next day and he had his own practice that he needed to sleep. So So, he started sleeping on the couch. When you had the first baby with him, you guys made it through that transition. We did. Okay. Mm -hmm. We actually did. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, when the second one came along, that's when the transition went from him sleeping in the same room to mm-hmm. him on the couch. And it pretty much stayed that way how for the you, rest of the marriage. How did you feel about that? I think when it first started, I understood it. We both needed sleep. You know, you have a newborn and you have, you know, other kids. And I had kids that weren't just starting to drive. So they didn't have their own car. So it was still driving everybody. And I lived in the car, in the van. And the baby lived in the van and slept in the van and ate in the van. So it was, I think it, it, you know, we were just kind of going along and I think it was okay for a while, but, you know, especially come weekends or something, you're like, you know, it'd be nice if you could just be up here with me for a while. And I think he would, he'd stay up for a while and he, he, he was one who always wanted the TV on and I didn't want the TV on. So, cause mm. I, I always fought right. with the idea, no, there shouldn't be a TV in the bedroom, mm-hmm. you know, because I was like, that's when we can talk, <laughs> you know? So I was always saying, you know, I don't want to imagine. I mean, sometimes you do, but you know, I wanted to try to communicate cause we weren't communicating. But a lot of times what happens is that then he would lay down and I was still running around doing last minute things and I'd come into the room and he's sleeping mm-hmm. already and it could be nine o'clock. So, you know, I would try to, you know, just, he snored. So I would just put in earplugs and if he woke up, I would try to talk to him then, you know, if he was awake for a while, we would, we would try to talk, but it, that got fewer and fewer <laughs> until it just got to the point where I I think it, it felt like more of a hassle for him to mm-hmm. come up to bed. So you guys weren't really feeding the relationship at all? No. Right. No, I think there were things that he liked to do. I mean, he liked to go. He We had a pontoon boat and he really liked to go out on that. That was his escape. Okay. And it was okay. Once in a while we would go out, but I found out, you know, because it, Like I said, we have these traditional roles. Like he was in charge of that boat. And if I did something not right, I got yelled at. Like, like yelled at (laughs) to the point where you'd be like, 
yeah, this wasn't fun for me. (laughs) (laughs) He was the captain. He was the captain, which was okay if he would have said, you know, well, this is what I expect when like we get into like a dock. This is what I want you to do. Like actually teach me Mm -hmm. and show me. But it wasn't the case, you know. And then so I kind of, I learned as I went, like, okay, I'm going to jump out, I'm going to do this. And, but if I did something wrong, believe me, I knew it. I, I was told if I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. So did you guys spend point- any time alone together without the kids? Just the two of you? When we would, if we went out on the boat. Okay. Yeah. But like I said, I think for me, it got to the point when he would say he was going out. Did I want to go out? I would be like, mm, not really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because it it wasn't enjoyable for me. I felt like we ended up in more fights Mm -hmm. out on the boat. (laughs) And then we're out in the middle of nowhere, which maybe was good and bad. But (laughs) (laughs) So you're focusing your attention on your kids. You guys are kind of living these parallel lives. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? Um, And then I get, well, and then actually I went to an attorney Actually, by mm-hmm. 2000, fall of 2013, mm-hmm. I sought out an attorney that a girlfriend had used. Um, how, so, how did you get to make that decision? They're just, he, he did not want to go to counseling. Mm-hmm. I kept after him for a while to go to counseling. He did not want to do it. It wasn't until I filed that he was like, okay, I'll go to counseling. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, that's when actually I called you guys. Mm. And we sat up a couple times, I think maybe that we came. Mm-hmm. And then I was having pain in my back. I had already in 2009 went through, I guess I kind of skipped that whole part too. In 2009 is when I first was diagnosed with cancer. I had found it. I had a mastectomy. I went through chemo and radiation. That year is t- uh, total loss to me. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what happened that year. Just with memory is memory good. with my kids. Nothing. I have no recollection of really other than what I was going through at that moment. Wow. Did yeah? It really did that like, uh, impact your guys' relationship, or was it still you guys were so separate at that point um, that it didn't? It did impact the relate. I mean. Of course it did. I I could no longer work for that year. I mean, after the after I had the port put in to have the chemotherapy, that's when I stopped work, and that was hard because I couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was. I mean, it pretty much took me under from May to September. Was he supportive at that time? In my opinion, I think he. Now, looking back, did the best he could do. Mm-hmm. Um, was it what I needed? No. Did other people see it? Yes. So my sister, like, my sister had saw it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, so it's uh, kind of like being back at Elena, and other people are seeing it, right? And and they could see that you know that it was not, it was hard for him, mm-hmm. but that he wasn't really asking for probably help or getting the help that he needed mm-hmm. emotionally himself. So he was just kind of distant? Oh, he was very distant from me. And we would still have fights, believe it or not, going through Mm -hmm. all this. I mean, that didn't change anything. There, you know, there was always kind of fights that we just couldn't resolve. I mean, it just, 
I think it just got worse and worse because we just didn't communicate. And he was the type of person who it was very easy for him to shut off and not talk for even three weeks to me, like Mm -hmm. other than what's going on with the kids, what we're having for dinner. So what you're going through is not even in his realm of consciousness. Well, I don't think it's something that he could sit there and talk with me and cry with me about. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think those feelings could come out and I needed that. So you're you're kind of on your own. Yes. Yeah. Other than the support from family. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. stage cancer was it in 09? In 09, it was like stage 2B, they called it. So I had a right mastectomy radical. So I had the lymph nodes taken out also. Which, and, and that recovery coming back from it was, you know, that was tough even the year after. But, you know, I, I did go through counseling for through like the cancer center Mm -hmm. where I went. So I was going through counseling with that and speaking with other cancer patients. Was there things you learned about yourself that you find valuable for going through that experience? Well, I mean, what I've learned now in the long run through everything, um, there's, yes, there's there's a lot of valuable things that happen. I mean, you have to have a support group, you know, but learning about myself is, you know, was the most eye-opening thing because I think in, in a marriage, you, in traditional roles, you forget about who you are, I think, sometimes and what you, what your dreams were. And I think those get buried with kids and things and and then you add an illness on top of it. Do you think those two things are related? That that the lifestyle that you had where you're kind of, you know, just surviving, 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 doing what you need to be done in the moment, not doing much self-care contributes to getting sick? I definitely believe that. And I read a lot of studies about the, the emotional effect of your way of thinking. Yes, because I think... With our marriage, I was just going through the motions and I, I wasn't really living. I was just there. And I think as with the illness, you know, I thought it was, you know, better. I thought it was in, you know, remission and I knew the marriage wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And. I think that's when we came to the 2013 mm-hmm. when I finally filed and he was like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll go to counseling and we showed up and then that's when I got re-diagnosed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple stage, weeks later. Yeah, yeah, stage four breast cancer that metastasized to the bones. So when I found that out, I was by myself also. I had, had driven myself to the emergency room because I was in so much pain. And I wasn't even thinking that it was cancer. So, of course, they come back in the room and they're telling me by myself that it metastasized to my bones. So, what was the prognosis at that point? Well, that was in an emergency room. So, I, I, I didn't, I couldn't even like fathom what was like really happening at that point. And then that week we went back to the cancer treatment center. And the prognosis, I mean, there is no cure is the what they tell you. It's just something that 
it's chronic and, you know, we are just trying to keep you alive so we can offer these drugs. I needed a vertebroplasty in my L2, um, so I had to have surgery to put like a cement in there because it was in my spine and in my hips and on my sternum and on my shoulders. I mean, it was everywhere at that point. Mm-hmm. And you need surgery in all those places? No, just oh. surgery in the L2 because the L2, they were scared my vertebrae was actually going to collapse. Crack. Yeah. Yeah, because I was barely hanging on, actually. So I had that done. That was at the end of December 2013. Um, in January, end of January, I think I was trying to get Steve to go back to counseling mm-hmm. that we need it more than ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So if we want to make this marriage work, we're going to have to do this. And he did not want to do that. He did not want to go to counseling. And I don't know if he was just overwhelmed with what was going on with me mm-hmm. at the time. So I left it alone for a little bit. I started going to counseling with Eugene. Mm-hmm. So I think I learned a lot about what I was going through and just going through the the motions. And, you know, I really even didn't have a faith at that point. Like I didn't even have faith in God Mm -hmm. at that point because I was like, well, my marriage has been crumbling and here I have this, you know, and I have four kids at home, you know, so. Was Was there a point that you were in between like preparing to die or preparing to fight? Well, I think when you get that diagnosis, you're kind of looking at them, well, what does that mean? Like, it's chronic. I mean, there's no cure. I mean, what are you, do I have three years to live, four years to live? And they, they kind of look at you and they just shake their head. They're like, we, we can't tell you that. Yeah. We don't know. Said everybody's different and you'll have to decide what kind of treatment you want to go on. So how'd you decide? Um... I actually went online, which is what they tell you not to do. (laughs) I went online to look for alternative treatments because I had already been through the chemo and radiation in 2009. And evidently, that really wasn't helping it. Came back. So, and it came back with a vengeance. So, I sought out um, a Dr. Stanislaw Brzezinski in Texas. He had been curing cancer with his own serum and and treatments and the way he, he did do some traditional stuff, but he did things in a different way. Mm-hmm. It wasn't um, toxic. So I, I got all this information and I brought it to Steve and I was like, you know, I really need you to just take off a weekend of work. One weekend, I need your input. Because he was a chiropractor. He was in that type of field. And I I just wanted his input on it. I said, you know, I've got this video we can watch. I've got all this information. And he he basically looked at me and he said, yeah, well, I can't take off work. He goes, you're not working. And he goes, and I, you know, who's going to support, who's going to support us? And I said, well my parents are helping us at the moment because I'm not working. So I said, I need you to just just be with me for a weekend and help me make some decisions here. And he wouldn't do it. Yeah, he couldn't do that. He couldn't do it. Mm-mm. So... You think that was his denial about what you were going through at that time? Or he just was 
overwhelmed. Overwhelmed, yeah. I think he was overwhelmed. And he just, and he, I don't think he even realized what he was saying to me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I really, like, he's I, so logical. He's not, not emotional. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so much so that I really now look back at it and I'm like, he didn't even, it didn't even real like trigger something that what he was saying to me was right. so bad <laughs> at you, the moment. Do and you it, remember what his reaction was when you told him you, you had cancer again? Actually, I called him from the ER oh. when I went and he came, he did come right over. He, he was at work and he left. And I couldn't drive because I was so shocked. I couldn't, I didn't want to get back in the car and drive. So mm-hmm. I left my car there and he drove me home. But I think he, you know, when he first came in, he hugged me mm-hmm. and I was crying. I don't know if he was crying. He wasn't showing me that he was crying. He might have been, but it wasn't outwardly to where I could tell mm-hmm. he was. Was that? the most amount of support you got from him during that process? Um, I, I think he would hug me on and off and he would go to some of the, the doctor's appointments, mm-hmm. you know, and he would, he, I think he would try. I think he would try to hold my hand at times. and But other times he was distant. I mean, mm-hmm. distant. I mean, so I, I just think it's whatever he could give at that time. Like, I don't think he ever looked at it as I, I got to not be on my computer because he would bring his laptop with him sometimes because I need to be focused on what's going on, mm. you know, or something. Yeah. You know, I remember it's okay for me to say this, that you would talk about how lonely it was because he wouldn't come in the bedroom and you were trying to, deal with all these emotions Mm -hmm. and you just were so overwhelmingly alone. Yes. So when I started going back to counseling with just you and I realized he was not coming, I, I would, I would lay in the bed every night and I, I would cry Mm -hmm. because I, I was truly missing and it does, it makes me sad even now just thinking about it because of how sad I was. Yeah. It was it was crippling, actually, to the point at night where I couldn't sleep and I would just, I would cry myself to sleep. Or if I wouldn't cry, I would start saying like rosary prayers because those mm-hmm. were so repetitious mm-hmm. that I would fall asleep. Yeah. And I remember, you know, all, the, all that you had taught me as far as about myself mm-hmm. and, you know, that I have all these people who support me. And I'm focused on one person who can't be there. Yeah. So I started looking at it differently. And once I started looking at it differently at how many people I had in my corner Mm -hmm. and people and my daughter even wanting to start a fundraiser to help me get the funds. Because the alternative stuff wasn't covered by insurance. Right. It wasn't covered by insurance. And so, you know, here I had all these people backing me in a fundraiser give me money because they wanted me to go do whatever it is I needed to do to get whatever alternative treatment I wanted and all these family and friends. And, you know, when I looked around and I was like, wow, I have a lot of people who are here for me. People you never knew. Right. And it, it, it really changed for me. I realized that, yeah, I was focusing on the one negative thing 
instead of looking at all the positive that was already there. And once I did that, it was a lot easier. I actually started sleeping in the middle of the bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what what is the regiment that you came up with with, you know, all these people that are trying to help you and this alternative stuff? Because I know you were on a really strong daily practice for a while. As far as the meditating, the frankincense, the uh, right. So I I, I would take actually frankincense every day. I would ingest it mm-hmm. every day. I was meditating every day, just about every day. And even if it was only 15 minutes, I would be able to, I would be able to like really transition myself fast mm-hmm. because, and I still today set an intention for the day. So even if I don't get that chance to meditate, I set an intention. What what was the common intention you would set back then? The one back then, I think, you know, I, I had so much gratitude, but I wanted to just, for me, it was to just have love in my heart Mm -hmm. and to be able to show that to other people without, you know, without taking any negative energy in. So I wanted to bring love to as much people as I could, because at that point, I had always thought that's what I was lacking. I wanted love. I wanted love, you know, and I wasn't getting it in the marriage. But then I realized once I started setting the intention to give it, and even at work, and and, and, in the people I would help, if I did it out of love, it seemed like my day went so much smoother. Like, and, you know, whatever happened during that day, even if I had an irate patient or something, I could handle it. It never flustered me. And how did that end up impacting your health? I went into remission. And I went into remission, actually. Mm -hmm. So here they raised this money for the fundraiser. I go down there and I'm in remission already. Oh, wow. So I didn't even get any treatment. treatment there. So here I have this fundraiser amount of money to help me with all my deductibles, with all my alternatives of frankincense mm-hmm. and any uh, tons of supplements that I was taking and I still am. Um, so you didn't do radiation, didn't do chemo. You started on your own regimen. And before you started treatment down in Texas or went down there, you had gone into remission. Correct. Wow. Now, since then, it has come back. Mm-hmm. I have sought treatment down in Mexico, though, this time. Um, I went to the biomedical center, the Hoxie Clinic, mm-hmm. which started a long time ago, actually, in Illinois in the 1930s. It actually started. And they treat all chronic illnesses, not just cancer. And they have what they call their hoxytonic, which has like um, a B17 in it from the amygdala. I think the apricot seeds are where B17 comes from. Anyway, so they make up a tonic with that, with herbs that, that I take now, even now, four times a day. And I have a lot of Chinese herbs that I take. Mm-hmm. So the last scan was actually kind of a mixed thing. So I'd only been on this for about six months. And so things, certain things did kind of go back in remission that were um, live. Um, I had a few areas that were of concern, um, I guess, walking around with a 
broken left rib, which I didn't realize. Gosh. I mean, I knew when it happened, but I didn't realize I broke it or that there was cancer there. So that has, that areas have decreased. So there's decrease going on, but then there was one area that lit back up on my femur. So I'm, I went back down to Mexico just in July and um, they have me on a little bit of a different regimen and something for my liver because they were a little concerned about my liver too. So I'm just, I'm on a very, very strict diet. Um, I'm mainly plant-based. Mm-hmm. I will eat meat when I'm feeling like I need, really need protein or something, but I won't just go eat chicken or um, I'll eat fish, mm-hmm. fresh fish and all plants. Basically. Probably all organic. Uh, organic yeah. as much as I possibly can. Yeah. 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 So between finding out you're in remission and finding out it's active again, mm-hmm. are you continuing to meditate and take frankincense? And I think you were doing a lot of massages. Yes. I still do massages mm-hmm. and I will do the raindrop massages when I can afford it. I no longer have funds because by all by this time now they've it's you know between all the mm-hmm. deductibles and everything everything's gone. So how are you managing the stress levels in your life after you go into remission and then now you have to like live life again? Right, that's a hard balance at times, and it was probably just recently because here I'm on this regimen. And it's like, I'm trying to follow this and this and this. And I'm like, I remember waking up because I tend to have things come to me in dreams. Mm -hmm. And I woke up and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not living my life anymore. (laughs) I'm just doing all this stuff. So I realized I was trying to not die is what my goal was, but I wasn't living my life Mm -hmm. again. So I had to refocus again and go, Okay, you're not going to die if you have a cup of coffee with cream in it on a weekend with friends, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of like I was getting so stringent with it that I was and allowing myself to even have a good time, Mm -hmm. you know. So then I realized, well, that's not going to (laughs) work. So I've, yeah, I constantly have to bring that to light. I think it's easy to get into a rut with work and just things going on. And and in between there, you went through a divorce mm-hmm. and moved into your own place and mm-hmm. still raising. You got one more at home. I have a 14-year-old mm-hmm. at home. He's just starting high school. <laughs> so I've got four more years of high school. Yeah. 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 Yep. So. And how many years have you been on your own now since the divorce? It's been two years on my own. Mm-hmm. Two years. Mm-hmm. Okay. How did you decide on the clinic in Mexico versus the clinic in uh, Texas? Texas? Yeah. Well, I keep in contact with um, certain patients that I met, like in Texas, and um, through email. I would ask them, so how are you doing? Did you go back down there? You know, just see what's up with them. And one of them did go back down there, but she was like, you know, you really should probably seek treatment somewhere else because he is being run out of Texas and I'm pretty sure he's going to move his practice to Mexico. Oh, wow. Right. Because the Texas Medical Board has been after him year after year after year. They take him to court for something just to try to strip Mm. him because 
he owns the lab, he owns the patent, <laughs> and they can't get their hands on it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And they've limited it to who he can give that drug to now. Um, it's like the worst case scenario, brain cancer patients. Wow. So he he has other medicine that he uses, but he was very expensive. And I was like, well, I could go the route of doing a fundraiser again, going down there. But she had told me about the Hoxie Clinic and I heard about the Hoxie Clinic, which is actually called the Biomedical Center now, from the Truth About Cancer. And the Truth About Cancer has a website that's excellent for anybody going through cancer. It has a lot of information. It has a lot of good information. So when I saw saw that the Truth About Cancer was backing the Hoxie Clinic and that the guy who started that website was actually going to bring his father there before he actually passed, I was like, you know what? I'm going to try this place. Mm-hmm. So brother who lives in California, Southern California, he went with me. I flew out to his place and he went with me down mm-hmm. to Mexico. And he was pretty impressed by everything, you know, because I think they all go there like, oh my God, where is she going now? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> She's going to Tijuana. Yeah, Tijuana. <laughs> <laughs> so when we got there, you meet with an oncologist that's there, a doctor, and they go over your health history and everything about you. And then they have you go to see um, nutrition. They have you go for um, one of their blood tests. They they need, depends on what you're there for, but they wanted me to do a certain blood test. They wanted to see something. So I went through also their nutrition class while I was there. And then, and then they bring you back to the oncologist and the oncologist comes back, back with this whole game plan of, you know, what we're going to do. They typically want to see you every six months. And if you can't do that, you know, you send in your blood work to them. If you can have it still done in the States, they they recommend, you know, still doing it in the States and then having the information results of, results mm-hmm. of the PET scans and that to them. And, and that's what I do right now. Anyway. Do, do you see a difference in how cancer is viewed and treated in the United States versus down there in Mexico? It's totally different. <laughs> the The difference is the minute you walk in there, you feel the hope that they give you. So there's no terminal. Like it's like there's nothing terminal. Like they don't come out and say that terminal like Mm. you know what I mean like you don't feel like you're there you know stage four this is how long you have to live you're there to work on your health I met a lot of people there stage four a lot of different cancers Mm -hmm. Um, people who are back after 20 years so people who never even had surgery Mm -hmm. who had breast cancer never had the lump taken out and it was 20 years and they were treated back in, in Mexico in Mexico 20 years ago yeah and they're they're Still, continuing to be healthy. Yes. Awesome. Yes. So, you know, there's always that, you know, you always have that little voice in your head going, okay, well, let's try this. Let's see, see what's going to go on. But I think if you go in into it with just, I'm going to, this is going to work. I'm, I'm going to do my best. And, 
And that's kind of the way I look at it. It is a mindset. It's easy to go down the road, you know, because here, even when I got the PET scan, they were like, oh, well, yeah, you know, it's kind of, it's really bad in your femur. And, you know, it's all negative. Like when they talk to you, Mm -hmm. there's nothing like positive and it all has to do with taking drugs and then the drugs have side effects mm-hmm. that they're going to give you the drugs and there's like three of them that they would like me to go on but I've studied enough about those drugs that I know what those all the side effects are and I, I don't want to go um, go down that mm-hmm. road because the quality of your life is so bad and I've seen people even come into our practice who are you know, cancer patients. Mm-hmm. And I know that see the drugs that they're on and the type of um, the impact it has. On yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think they give you so much more hope and there's just like a light there that, and all the people there are so happy. People coming in there are stage four and everybody's so happy to be there. Wow. That's awesome. That's yeah. a beautiful image. <laughs> It is. Yeah. It's it, and it's a beautiful place. I mean, it's very simple. It's not fancy. Mm-hmm. And then they have their own little kitchen where this woman and she has someone helping her. She's there all the time cooking nonstop, and it's an honor system. You just cash registers over on the side, and you just put your money in there. <laughs> and, wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's different. So now in in you know, in your your life right now, how do you view relationships? And do you, you know, do you see yourself in a relationship in the future? You know, I've tried to ask myself that. <laughs> Believe it or not, I do. I, I do want a relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and I can see that happening, actually. I think it will take someone very special, <laughs> for sure, mm-hmm. because of what I've, I'm going through and I'll continue to go through my whole life. I won't say it's necessarily a fight, but it's just a change of life. And I always have to be vigilant of the fact of what I'm putting in my mouth is going to affect my body. Mm-hmm. Um, more so than most people. But I think everybody's getting to that point now where they've got a, there's a lot of chronic illnesses out there. Yeah. But I do see myself in a relationship. I don't know if that would necessarily be marriage. That wouldn't be the thing that comes to my to mind when I think relationship. But I think I would love to be able to be close with somebody, um, be able to go on trips and just um, enjoy doing things. Have a companion. Almost. Right, yeah. right. A companion. I would like, you know, to really get to know somebody really well, you know. But so three final questions, because you kind of have three major themes in your life. What advice would you give to someone in a relationship with an addict who's in the middle of it? Get your support system first. Go seek help for if you cannot seek, you can't make that person change or not be an addict. So you have to go get the help for yourself. And it's possible that that other person will seek the help then too. And don't be scared to listen to the voice inside because when you push that aside, that's that's when the negative stuff starts. Mm-hmm. 
And what advice would you give someone who is in a relationship that didn't feed them at all? Well, you got to look for the positive outside of the relationship. Um, and, you know, it's in yourself too. I mean, you know, there's reasons why I think sometimes that the relationships and ends like, or is like that. I, yeah, it, that one's hard. I think that's almost harder to tell you the truth mm-hmm. than the addict. Yeah. Because it's clear. Right. And I don't think you see it for a long time. And then when you finally, I think it takes a while to realize that. A long while, mm-hmm. usually. Um, I think once you do, that's the same thing. You have to listen to, <laughs> you have to listen to that voice that, that keeps telling you, you know, you need to either one, move on. You need to get counseling. You need to confide in somebody because that's not the way you want to live your life is be in a relationship where someone's not there for you. I yeah, mean, it's almost like you, when you're going through a thing, you're, you can't think your way out of it. If you don't have another perspective, you just keep going in circles. Right. And I think if I wasn't going through counseling right after, you know, the when I got the second diagnosis with you because I was so heartbroken and I think I wanted the marriage to work. I think I really did. But I think at that point, once I let go of that, I didn't need him to be happy that I think that's pretty much when I let go of the whole whole marriage. So I think even the fact, I think, you know, we came back, we wanted to even try to repair, repair it. And I was thinking, oh yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it, like, if he just gave you a drop of hope, you're like, oh, I'm back. But, but then I, I realized I let go of it too long ago that I couldn't go back to that. I couldn't, I couldn't take it back. And, it, and it's just a feeling inside of you that you all of a sudden realize I can't, I can't do it. Yeah, you had already moved on. Right. And I guess I didn't. I, I felt bad because any relationship that ends, it's sad and it's hard. Mm-hmm. And everybody's at a different point. And it's hard for them to understand where you're at. And what advice would you give someone who, whatever the term is, finds out that they need to be paying a lot more attention to their health? I hear it a lot, actually, because people... People will ask me, like, why do you, how come you look so good if you have stage four cancer? Mm-hmm. How, how come you're doing so well? And I'll tell them, and then they'll tell me what's going on with them. And I'll be like, oh, well, are you married? Yeah. So how's that going? And they'll be like, you know, they'll, there might be something wrong with that. Or they, they have kids at home. And while I do everything for the kids, like I don't have any time for myself and I would be like, well, you got to make time for yourself. So if you can't take care of yourself right now, when you're sick and you're going through a chronic condition, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And that's hard for someone to understand, but the light bulb does go on for some people when I say something like that to Mm -hmm. them. I'm like, but you have to make the decision to change things. So whether it's changing things in your household with your kids or in your marriage or with yourself, with work, if it's, you know, you're working 60 hours a week and you have a chronic illness, that's not going to, it's not going to get better. 
So it, it is definitely you have to step back. You have to look at your life. You have to change everything in your life that's going to benefit you and your to keep you to either keep you alive um, so that you can thrive. I mean, you don't want to just, like I said before, just try not to die. You want to thrive and you want to live and be happy. And the only way to do that is mind, body, spirit, cleanse of everything. Mm -hmm. So you got to look at your emotional well-being, your diet, your... Even where you live, you're thinking, (laughs) you're thinking where you live. I mean, there's so many factors and I don't think people look into every aspect of that. Um, They just look into one. Yeah. And they think if they're just taking this pill that they're going to get better. You know, I was listening to Bernie Siegel and even he, you know, he's constantly trying to teach people that it is mind over matter. It's, It's huge. You know, one of the things that I tell every single person that goes through some type of big thing, and all three things of those of yours are big things, and you kind of said the same thing, and that is become the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. And when you become that, when you know yourself at that level, you won't allow whatever the other stuff back in. And, you know, your story, you can see where you almost were sleepwalking through a big part of your life. And you know, even the diagnosis is it was a major wake up call for you. Right. And it's really sacred and it's, it's making you stay in your it, life. Right. And, and it's been a blessing. Mm-hmm. Yes. It ended up being a blessing in my life. Yeah. So everybody's, you know, is, well, when they start talking to me, it's so sad. And I'm like, well, actually it's been a blessing because it made me change everything in my life for the better, for the better. Yes. Well, it sounds like you have, gotten an awareness that many, many people out there don't have. And all throughout the challenges that you've kind of been through, it it sounds like that theme of finding that love within yourself has really resonated, you know, throughout your entire life. And Teresa, I want to wholeheartedly thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Your story is a very courageous one. Thank you. (laughs) You know, we get wounded through relationship. And we heal through relationship. And sharing stories has been part of the human experience since the beginning of time. And we hope that by you sharing your story, it has enriched your life and the lives of our listeners. Thank you. For all of you listening, if you have any questions or topic suggestions, please feel free again to leave a comment or look us up online at couplesynergy.com. Until next time. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian, along with Organizational Director Calvin Javier and Marketing Coordinator Bridget Reese. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez. <laughs>